Welcome to the Sunday Service Podcast of First Universalist Church, a Unitarian Universalist congregation located in Minneapolis, Minnesota. We are a radically welcoming and progressive religious community, deeply committed to love, justice, spiritual growth, and living out our values in the world. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org. So you may not know this about me, but I am a little bit of a game nerd. Uh, When I was younger, in addition to Sorry and Monopoly and Risk and Axis and Allies and Chutes and Ladders and Uno and all of those things, my family also had about a half a dozen cooperative games from this very little game company called the Animal Town Game Company. And those are the ones I really remember. I'm the oldest of five, and I have these very clear memories of me and my siblings and my parents playing these cooperative games. One of the games was called Dam Builders, and the players controlled a group of beavers, moving them around the board to build dams and collect food while avoiding predators, it was a wolf, and trying to stop the Army Corps of Engineers bulldozer from destroying their habitat. So there's a little bit of a political theme to this game. And I just just have crystal clear memories of this game and the pieces and uh, how you had to work together. It wasn't like one beaver was like, I win, like everyone else is dead. It was like, no, you have to work together so the whole like colony of beavers survives. I don't even know if it's a colony. Someone can look that up on their phone and tell me what you call a group of beavers. Anyway, this cooperative game playing really rubbed off on me. And I remember uh, that somehow my best friend Matt and I, one summer, we turned Monopoly into a cooperative game. We were, we were naughty little capitalists, I guess, sort of subverting the, <laughs> the game. Our goal, though, was to keep playing. Like, we wanted to play as long as we could. And so we lent each other money when we needed money. We made sure that we each had properties that we could develop. And we actually played Monopoly for like three weeks, every day for three weeks, for a big chunk of the summer. It was awesome. It was, it was amazing. All these memories are coming back to me now because our youngest son got a cooperative game for Christmas. Uh, it's a simple game. I think it's called like the orchard. And the goal is to work together. All the players are working together to try to pick the fruit out of the orchard before the crow gets into the orchard and then eats the fruit. Very simple. What I love about cooperative games, and I have a competitive streak in me too, so don't hear this as just like, oh, I'm so into co-op. I am into cooperative games and cooperation. And what I love about them is that they aren't about an individual victory or a single person celebrating. Rather, it's what do we need to do together to succeed. In a cooperative game, everyone has a stake in the outcome. So it's true in the Bible, and in most sacred texts, honestly, there are not a lot of specific stories about games and game playing, cooperative or otherwise. This is true. If there's some biblical scholars or sacred text scholars who want to Enlighten me and point those out to me. That'd be great, but not a lot that I know of. But if you think about it, living an authentic spiritual and religious life, living a deeply grounded, faithful life, that is about playing the greatest game ever. You see, that is about considering how our lives and our communities and the institutions that we're a part of, how those can be pieces in this great big 
board game we're all a part of. How they can be pieces that help create beloved community. How they can be pieces that help us make sure everyone has enough. Pieces that ensure oppression is dismantled and resources are shared. In this game, the game we're all in, it's not about individual winning or salvation. It's not, I won, I got my ticket to heaven. It's about collective healing and liberation and salvation. It's about creating heaven here on earth and saying, we've got our golden ticket together. Come, let us worship together. So, when I was 10 years old, my father woke my four siblings and I up in the middle of the night. My father is a stern man. So he told us to get up and we did and didn't ask any questions. He told us to come downstairs, go into the garage and get into the car. So I tumbled out of the top bunk of my bunk bed, trying not to trip over my little sister who was in the bottom bunk. And in our pajamas, we piled into our family car. And in the dark of night, we drove down Highway 80 for 45 minutes from my hometown of Vallejo, California to Palo Alto. My father parked in an empty parking garage and walked us through corridor after corridor, through double door after double door, until we walked into this big room full of computers. My father told us each to sit down at a computer and turn it on. We did. And as he paced up and down the center walkway of that room, he looked at his watch and turned to us to say, in 30 seconds, something called the internet will go live. And you will be one of the first people in the world to, f to surf the World Wide Web. Uh, right? <laughs> My father was a Silicon Valley OG, as I like to call it, a single black dad raising five kids in the early 90s. His passion was for building a foundation for the ways that we connect and build power in communities. My father saw the internet as an opportunity to build community and power in ways that the world had never known. But he didn't stop there. Even after he became a successful Silicon Valley OG, as I call it, but software engineer, he came back to Vallejo. He built a resource center for black entrepreneurs in our community, a place for them to learn about technology and business. This kind of philosophy ran in my family. We celebrated Kwanzaa every year for all seven days. As a child, I was expected to write and present reports on historical black leaders, books, recite speeches or scripture to the most intimidating audience I had ever known, my family. It wasn't all bad. As a child, I was told I could be anything I wanted to be. I was constantly filled with confidence to dream big 
work hard, and always honor community. For my family, the power of unity and togetherness was always paramount. Each Kwanzaa, an elder, an aunt, an uncle, would hand us each a match. And they would lift one up in front of the room and say, with just one of us, even with our light shining bright, pressures of the world against us, we might falter. Oppression, racism, capitalism, that pressure could break us. But with many, and they would ask us each to hand our match to the front of the room, with many, we are not easily broken. And with many, we could start a mighty flame. The history of cooperativism and black culture is like the story of the matches. My father's instinct to build new systems comes from a rich history of black people building cooperatively, our sharing of knowledge, ownership, and success from Oakland to Mississippi, from Detroit to DC. As early as the 1920s, we built black banks, credit unions, labor unions, social halls, building flourishing microeconomies. And as history tells us, our efforts were not seen as encouraging middle-class models for upward mobility. They were seen as a threat to white supremacy. The history of lynchings in America is inextricably tied to the disruption of black wealth and ownership. Our most prevalent economic and social organizations were sought after and destroyed. Our civil rights leaders were hunted and gunned down in their homes and in the streets. Here in Minnesota, in 1928, a group of brilliant young black leaders formed a cooperative community we now know as Rondo. They came together and formed Credifon Cooperative. They had a credit union, a grocery co-op, tons of social organizations. It was destroyed by the prevalent and racist practice of using eminent domain to destroy black communities. That was through the building of Highway 94. The historical solidarity in the black liberation movement has taught us that we are less vulnerable when we are, in, are insulated by our allies. My father's interests and my family's practice send me out into the world as a dreamer of new systems. I became obsessed with learning about the systems we exist in and those that we need for our own liberation. The seeds that were planted in me long ago have manifested and blossomed into the person I am today. In 2014, I was on my way. I had been a budding entrepreneur, taken my business skills out into the marketplace. I became the leader and manager of a prevalent and large security firm until the killing of Mike Brown 
where I was moved to act. I saw an ad on Facebook, some ragtag folks were getting together to protest on Black Friday. And so I joined seven or 10 individuals and we walked around the perimeter of, Mar of Mall of America, holding signs, Black Lives Matter. And when I got into my car at the end of that protest in the silence of the Mall of America parking lot, I reflected on the impact of that moment for me. It was very difficult for anyone that saw us to ignore us. We either got a special finger raised at us, a get a job, yelled in our direction, or we got a honk, a fist in the air, and woohoo. But it was very rare that someone would walk past us and not say anything. And I saw the power of lifting up injustice in our world and making sure that people knew. And after that protest, I decided to quit my job and dedicate the skills that I had gained in the marketplace towards building, towards black liberation. I joined the black-led organization, Neighborhoods Organizing for Change, and became their first operations director. My skills of building invisible systems and infrastructure fit perfectly there. Until we came to the intersection of pain that many communities across the country felt the loss of black lives at the hands of police. And through rallies, through occupations, through protests, I saw the weight and burden that was placed on the shoulders of so many of our young, brilliant, vibrant activists and thought to myself, there should be a way for them to pass the baton. There should be a way for our young people to be able to rest. There should be a way to activate so many of our community members who believe in black liberation, but not, may not be comfortable shutting down a freeway. And so we, we had a call of action one week after Philando Castile was killed. And that call of action was towards economic resistance, economic activism. How can we take our money and use it in a way that moves liberation forward? In that room, we got in small groups, people wrote down all their ideas, what can we do, what should we prioritize? The ideas ended up on the walls, on butcher paper surrounding everyone, and then we had multiple rounds of voting. Put a check next to the idea that you think is the most powerful. And at the end, we had a list of seven ideas on a whiteboard, and at the top of that list was to establish a black-led financial institution on the north side of Minneapolis. And it had over double the votes of any other idea on that board. And from that room, volunteers came forward to help us start campaigning towards this idea. Months later, we came across an opportunity to partner with the local family foundation, the Jan Rose Phillips Family Foundation, and we were granted funds to establish the Association for Black Economic Power. And in February of 2017, we started organizing toward establishing a black-led financial institution. A typical effort like this with the organizing team that we had at the time, me and an intern. It takes about three to five years to go from idea to submitting an application to the Department of Commerce or the National Credit Union Administration. It usually ends up being around 600 pledged members that ends up on that application. By the end of 2017, we had over 1,100 pledged members. By the end of 2018, 
we had over 1,700 pledged members that represented $4.25 million of deposits. By the end of 2018, we had already submitted our application to the Minnesota Department of Commerce that summer in June, and we had been approved by December. We've raised over a million dollars of operating capital, and we're on our way to hit our mark in opening this year, and our best hope is that we can open on Juneteenth. But we didn't stop there. In our efforts, our pledged members would reach out to us and text us and email us. One example was a Friday night when a pledged member wrote, I am in a line at Walmart. There are 60 people here trying to cash checks and apply for small dollar loans. When will Village be open? And our response to that was, we don't need a credit union to address that. So we decided to establish the New Day Loan. It is a small dollar consumer loan that we offer to community, up to $500 at zero to 8% interest. We launched that in the summer of 2018 and by November we had over 20 loans out at 100% repayment rate. Our community had shown that they understood the power of cooperative economics. They were bought into the idea that when they take funds from a cooperative loan fund, they know the power of bringing those funds back so that it can go to their cousin or their neighbor or their coworker who needs it. Black power is undeniable. Our resilience is our greatest strength. However, as a community, our efforts to live in freedom and peace have been intentionally disrupted. We need our broader community, those who believe in black liberation, who know and respect our history, who do not see allyship as an opportunity to usurp power or authority, but an opportunity to embody the history of communities that have come before them. The quilters, who sowed secret messages along the way of the Underground Railroad. The non-black members of the Freedom Riders, who risked their lives to fight Jim Crow segregation in the South. The white allies who joined the March on Washington and who flanked black protesters across the country using their privilege to protect vulnerable black bodies from the hands of police violence and abuse. Allies, you are a part of black history, and your part is just as crucial now as it was then. When you think of how to be an ally, remember the term skip. Can you say that with me? Skip, yes, S-C-I-P. It stands for support, celebrate, insulate, and protect. Support, give all you can. In that room that first night, we separated the group. Black folks went to one room because we wanted to center the voices of those who were facing the oppression to come up with the strategies that they believed would push us into the future we wanted to see. And in the other room, folks that did not identify as black 
They sat and they cataloged all the resources, connections, assets that they had that could fuel the strategies that were being developed in the other room. That's an example of support. Celebrate, shout to the rooftops, tell your friends, get on social media, get on that Instagram page. Celebrate the movements of liberation that are around you. It's really easy for us to talk about all the things going wrong, but it's even more powerful to lift up the people who are doing the work to get things going right. Insulate, one definition is to protect from the unpleasant effects or elements of something. A strategic, silent position for the purpose of absorbing harm to what surrounds what we're trying to protect. And to protect means to adamantly defend, to stand beside, to honor. So, Justin, I'm gonna have you come up and I need someone that's still cold because it's still like 40 degrees outside who has a scarf today. Just need to borrow that. Anyone have a scarf? I will give it back to you. There'll be no harm. Yes, wonderful. Beautiful purple. She's got two. Okay, yes, come through. So when we talk about that practice that my family taught me, We talk a lot about the matches, but we don't talk a lot about the grip. The grip of oppression. The grip of white supremacy. The grip of police brutality. That grip is still felt, even when we're united and we can't be broken. Justin, try to break this, you're stronger than me. Even when we can't be broken, that grip is still there. One thing that my family didn't teach me in this exercise was the role of allies. If these matches represent black liberation and liberation movements, what does it mean to be an ally when you support, when you celebrate, when you insulate? What happens to the effects of that grip? How can we absorb that as allies? How can we take the effects of oppression away from the movements that we want to see go forward? This was the missing piece and the evolution of black liberation and the lessons that we've learned from those that have come before us. This is how we activate and live out our Black Lives Matter signs. This is how we activate and live out our all are welcome signs. This is how we activate and live out our desire to do more than march and chant and rally. This is how the Black movement of liberation evolves and it includes you, and it is happening today. Did you get your match? Lift it up. This is our gift to you, a reminder of the potential of just one person. And as you leave here today, if you decide to pledge, to pledge your membership, 
not signing a contract in blood, just letting us know that you're down when, when we're ready. Then you can place your match along with others to show the power and strength in our numbers. Or you can take it home as a reminder for yourself of your role in the black liberation movement. Like I said, this is how the black liberation movement evolves. It's happening today. And we invite you to join us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this podcast from First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We're a faith community committed to racial justice, and together we give, receive, and grow in the Universalist spirit of love and hope. To learn more about who we are and our ministry, please visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org.